If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn to the book of Ezra. We're very near the end of our journey through the book of Ezra. This week and next week, and we will bid Ezra adieu. And so this evening, we will be looking at chapter 9 of Ezra. These last three chapters are uh, an insight into the prayers of God's people. You will see that, you will remember that, that last week we looked at the prayers of God's people for protection from their enemies. And this week we will look at God's people praying for purity. And then next week we will look at God's people praying for repentance. And so this week we will look at Ezra chapter 9, all 15 verses. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy, inerrant, infallible, sufficient, and authoritative word. Ezra chapter 9. After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the lands with their abominations, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head, and beard, and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel, because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles, gathered round me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice I rose from my fasting, with my garment and my cloak torn, and fell upon my knees, and spread out my hands to the Lord my God, saying, Oh, my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame as it is today. But now for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within His holy place that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves Yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us His steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving, to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. And now, O God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken Your commandments, which You commanded by Your servants, the prophets, saying, The land that you are entering to take possession of it is a land impure with the impurities of the people of the lands. 
with their abominations that have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land, and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this, shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with peoples who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so that there should be no remnant nor any to escape? O Lord, the God of Israel, You are just. For we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before You in our guilt. For none can stand before You because of this. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for His blessing upon it. Heavenly Father, we ask that You would speak to us through Your word. Your Word that is without error, that comes from Your Spirit, O Lord. Even as holy men of old were carried along by Your Spirit, we ask, O Lord, that it would convict us of our sin, that it would equip us to face the tasks that You have given to us in this world. This we ask in Christ's name. Amen. It is difficult today to be a Christian, isn't it? It seems that everywhere we turn, we are bombarded with filth, with uncleanness. We turn on the television. And even if we have guarded our channel mix oh so tightly, things come across. Even if we have selected certain programs to watch, Commercials bring filth into our home. And so we we retreat from that and we turn on the radio. And it meets us there as well. We think that we will only listen to certain stations. But then we are surprised to hear language and ideas that we never thought would come on those stations. We cannot even take a trip to the store without seeing people in dress that is scandalous. Language that offends the ears of adults, let alone children. We think about the news and how evil is so often called good. And all of the various ways in which the world wants to foist its standards upon us. And we think there's got to be something that we can do to fix the world. But maybe we're not fixers. Maybe we say the solution is not to fix, but to build a wall, a really big wall, to keep them out, to protect us from the filth and the sin that is out in the world. The problem, though, is the church can't fix the world. And the church can't wall off sin from its midst. Because you see, when we really think about it, faithlessness, the failure to follow God's call to holiness, 
and sin are found right in our midst. It's not something just out there. It's in here with us. And this is what Ezra finds here in chapter 9. He finds a people who have been returned from captivity, who are building anew the temple of the living God, who are starting again the people of God, a, a city set on a hill. And he is dismayed and alarmed at what he sees. How he sees the people of God not following the call of the Lord to holiness, but rather instead compromising with the sin that is around them. So this evening I'd like us to see two things briefly from this chapter 9. The first is we will see a report of a faithless people that comes to the ears of Ezra and to us. And then second, we will see that in response to this report, we will see the prayer to a faithful Lord. The report of a faithless people and the prayer to a faithful Lord. Let's begin then by looking at the start of chapter 9. After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, The officials come up to Ezra and they begin giving to him the news of what is happening in Israel. And I love the way the Bible at times understates what is going on. In this short phrase, after these things, the Bible is condensing about four and a half months of activity. From the end of chapter 8 to the beginning of chapter 9 is just about four and a half months. Ezra is on the scene And he has been doing what he always does. He has been teaching, preaching, and discipling others with God's Word for four months. Now, we don't hear it laid out. We don't have the names of his sermons. We don't know whether he was taking them through the book of Isaiah or the book of Leviticus. But we do know that he was a teacher of God's word. And we do know that in these four months, something has happened to at least some of the people of God. Because they come to him with news. They are affected by the word of God. Something that has been around them for many years, they now see in a completely different light. They come to Ezra and they say, Ezra, you've got to help us. The people of the land are intermarrying with our people. Our people who are supposed to be set apart are now giving their daughters in marriage to the men of the land who do not know or follow the Lord. And what do we do? And perhaps one of the most sorrowful things in Scripture occurs at the end of this verse. It's not just the people of Israel, but it is also the priests and the Levites. As a matter of fact, we see at the end of Verse 2, that it is among the chief men that this is the worst. Those who should be leading in the call to holiness, those who should be leading in the following of God's Word, those who should be instructing are leading in compromise and vice. But there is an interesting thing here about this sad news. Do you see it? And that is... God is not dependent upon leaders. You see, the leaders here are not following God's word. 
But God's word is so powerful that it comes to the ordinary people and they are affected by this. They are struck to the heart. And the word of God brings fruit in their lives. And fruit occurs in all sorts of ways. Sometimes it is in kindness and generosity. Sometimes it leads to hospitality. Sometimes it leads to gentleness. And sometimes it leads to a shock and an anger about how the word of God is being disobeyed. And they come to Ezra and they say, you have to do something about this. Now, we need to understand one thing very clearly in our day and age. The people of God are not worried about the racial aspects of this marriage. It has nothing to do with skin color or voice accent or where one was born. You see, even when the text here refers to the holy race of Israel, it doesn't mean it in a racial sense. We actually might better translate the word race, seed, holy seed. That should conjure up in your mind images. Images of Genesis chapter 3 and how the seed of the woman would crush the seed of the serpent. You see, what they are saying here is it's not that people from different backgrounds are marrying and they shouldn't. This is not some kind of proof text for some wicked racism. No, what they are saying is this is spiritual loss. This is the Old Testament equivalent of what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6. He says, do not be unyoked, unequally yoked. Believers should not marry unbelievers. That's what he's saying here. You see, what's happening here is not cultural. What's happening here is the true worship of God and the true following of God is going by the wayside because it is being corrupted with the worship of false gods. It's a spiritual matter. This is the news that comes to Ezra. And then we see his reaction. The first thing about it is that there is surprise, I think. Ezra can't believe his ears. Did they travel all this way to come back to the Holy Land only to mingle again with the people of the land? And then something happens to Ezra that I wish would happen more to the church today. He's devastated. Do you see this? He tears his garment and his cloak. He rips out his hair. And he begins to weep, I think. And all those who tremble at the Word of God, that is, all those who are open to what God has to say, and are ready to obey Him. They come around Him, and for hours, they are shocked and tremble before what is happening. Could you imagine that today? That if we sat here and thought about the compromise that is in the church today, and we said, you know what? We just need to be still before the Word of God. I'll dismiss us at 11.30 p.m. Could you do that? Could you tremble before the Word of God for hours on end with a sense of concern and sadness and loss because of what is going on? This is a very serious situation. How do we deal with this? We see it in our own day. 
We read news reports of the Boy Scouts following moral perversion. We see it in the way war is conducted in ways that do not honor biblical principles. We see it in theft everywhere in our midst. Lying and cheating. Marriage vows thought nothing of. And do you sit and wonder, where do I begin? What can I do? I'm only one person. How could I stop everyone in Hollywood from getting a divorce every 15 minutes? How do I rein in the rules of war? How do I tell Wall Street to be honest and true? Well, you can begin where Ezra begins. He begins with prayer. He prays to a faithful Lord. And he begins by showing us the posture that we should have for prayer. Now, I think sometimes we can be tempted in one of two ways. We can look at the physicality of prayer and make too much of it. To think that we can't pray unless we have our hands folded and our eyes closed. But then we can also make too little of it and think it doesn't matter whether we are on our knees or not. It doesn't matter whether we are focused or not. And, and we make so little of this physical posture. And I think Ezra here is showing us that his physical posture is an expression of his heart and we should emulate his heart. And the very first thing that we are struck with is the anguish that he feels. He is struck with grief and he rends his clothes. It's a very obvious and open way of saying that I am beset with grief. This is often the way that people would deal with the death of a loved one. Now, I'm not asking you to rip your clothes tonight. But do you grieve for sin? Do you truly grieve for sin? First and foremost, for your own sin. Does the sin that you commit scar you? Do you long to be free from it? Do you seek the Lord's face, asking Him to deliver you from it, to mortify it in your flesh? And do you grieve for the sin of God's people as a whole? Do you grieve that God's Word is not upheld? Do you grieve that there is a lack of honesty do you agree there's a lack of zeal for taking the Word of God throughout the world? Do you agree for the sin of the people collectively? Do you not just complain about the culture we live in, but does it sorrow your heart? Do you seek the Lord that He might grant us restoration and revival? But more than anguish, we see here that Ezra is struck with Humiliation. He humbles himself. He falls on his knees. And, and do you notice that as he's on his knees, what he does not try and do, he does not try and justify himself. What a temptation it would be for us in Ezra's place to say, Oh Lord, I'm so sorrowful about this sin. But you have to know, Lord, I've never participated in this. I've never intermarried with anyone else. I've never entertained thoughts of it. Lord, hear my prayer because, because I'm pretty good, especially compared to these other guys over here. I fear that sometimes that spirit infects our prayers. We expect God to listen to us because we can justify ourselves before our neighbor. 
Notice he also does not try and justify the people saying, Lord, you need to take it easy on them. They just don't understand. They haven't been taught the word very long. No, he doesn't do that at all. The other thing that he doesn't do that we are often tempted is he doesn't say, Lord, you need to understand that your ways are just too hard. You're just too picky, Lord. You're just too precise. Give us something to shoot for. Back off just a little bit, would you? You see, so often we look at our sin and we blame God. Because if God had only made it easier not to sin, then we could handle it. But Ezra doesn't do this. He has anguish. He has humiliation. And then he begins to plead before our Lord. And we see this in his gestures. He spreads out his hands before God. And what is he praying about? Is he praying about deliverance? Is he praying about hope? No. He's praying about sin. He's praying about the sin that the people of God have committed. And who is this? who is the one who will judge this sin? It's the very one that he's praying to. Do you see the majesty and the wonder of that? I think in a very practical way, that is worked out, that truth of the Scripture, that God is just and the justifier of the ungodly. God is the one who will judge you for every single one of your sins. Make no doubt about it. The Lord God Himself sees every single sin you commit. And every single one in thought, word, and deed deserve eternal damnation. Is that a frightening thought? It should be. So where do you go? Well, you go to that very one. Because He sees every single sin you commit, but He has provided atonement for every single sin you have. You see, you have nowhere else to go. You go to the one who is judge, and He judges, and He acquits because of Jesus. You see where Ezra drives us? He drives us to God. We are so tempted to hide from God when we have sinned, to seek comfort in other places, in books, in therapy, with people, with drink, with food. But you see, Ezra says, we must go to the one and only living God. There is no other place to go. And when Ezra does this, he begins to unburden his heart in a masterful way, begins to confess all of the guilt that has come upon him. You see, he goes boldly before the Lord God. But boldness does not mean foolishness. You see, we do have a boldness and an access before the throne of God because of the work of Jesus, but that does not mean that we have a familiarity with God. The Lord God, Creator of the universe, is not a buddy. He is not the big guy upstairs. He is not that familiar with us. He is the majestic Lord of the universe, the one before whom we have to stand. And so Ezra begins here with a great sense of guilt. He says, I am ashamed, in verse 6. I blush to lift my face to you. 
Sometimes I wonder whether the younger among us even know what blushing is. Doesn't it seem that blushing has been lost in America today? Politicians lie and they come bold-faced. And they say, well, it's your fault. It's her fault. Churchmen stand up and say, well, I've committed all these sins, but that actually helps me to understand other sinners better. So you need to forgive me. Even before I repent. But you see here, Ezra knows that even in lifting up his face to God, that he begins with a great sense of guilt. He goes before the Lord and he says, our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. It is a mountain piled up here in front of us. Now, if it's one thing that we downplay in our modern society, it's guilt. Guilt is bad. But you see, guilt is a part of God's word. We must understand when we sin that we are guilty. That is what drives us to Christ. If we don't have guilt, we don't have need of Jesus to take that guilt from us. We don't pass this off. The world is guilty before a holy God. And if we take that message away, we take away the message of grace and of atonement and of Jesus. But it's not just big guilt. It's collective guilt. He says this is not an isolated experience because throughout the ages our kings and our priests have been given into the hands of the kings of the lands. We've been doing this, Lord, for centuries. You see, what he says is it's continuing even now. It's not them, Lord. It's us. And then we see here in verse 8, One of my favorite words in all the Bible. There are some great words in the Bible. Holiness, atonement, justify. One of my favorite words in the Bible is the first word in verse 8. But. Because you see, all that we have said, and all that is there, and all the guilt that is before Ezra, is all found an answer to in this word, but. But But now for a brief moment... Favor has been shown. Now God's blessing of grace is upon us. And we must repent because God has shown us His grace. You see, the grace that we receive from the Lord is a call to be faithful. It is not an excuse to sin. It is not a free ride. The grace of God leads us to holiness, to obedience, to God's Word. This is what Ezra says in verse 12. He says, Therefore, because of what God has done, do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace and prosperity. The call of grace is a call of faithfulness. It is a call of continued hostility to the world, to be on God's side. It is a call to the way of hope. Do you see that at the end of verse 12? Do this that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it as an inheritance for your children forever. God's chastisement is gracious to us. His judgment, as we see here in verse 13, 
after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, and seeing that You, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserve, you see, the judgment that comes upon us is to keep us in the way of grace. And the punishment is always less than we deserve. Because you see, the chastisement of the Lord upon His people is that of a father on a child. Not of a judge on a convict. And there is at the conclusion of this chapter a final warning. Do you see it here in verse 15? O Lord, the God of Israel, You are just for we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. There is great patience in God, isn't there? Praise the Lord. But there is an end to his patience. You see, Ezra knows that God does not need them. There are plenty of other remnants throughout the world that he could gather together and rebuild the temple with. And so Ezra asks for nothing from God except mercy. And he calls upon the people of God to forsake sin because he knows that forgiveness comes to those who forsake sin. It is the test of a heart that actually beats. If today you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your God and Savior, the test of whether that confession is true and whether your sins are forgiven is whether you have a true heart that beats. The heart of stone is taken away and the heart of flesh put in and the heart of flesh desires to follow the Lord. To be holy as He is holy. To repent of sin and to leave it behind. That is how revival would come to Ezra and his people. That is how revival will come here to us in Katy and throughout the world. Let's pray.